For our scripture reading this morning, I'll be reading from two passages. The first comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and the second is from Galatians chapter 6. I'll begin with 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now turn to Galatians chapter 6. I'll be reading the first ten verses. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh uh, uh, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Grace and peace to each of you in the name of Jesus Christ. I invite you to turn in your Bibles now to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. Matthew, chapter 7. And we'll continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount uh, from this passage this morning. If I recall correctly, your bulletins uh, say Matthew 7, 1 through 14. We're going to go ahead and read that. We're really going to take verses uh, about 1 through... Can you find it in my Bible? 1 through 6. We're going to spend our time on that. Reference verse 12 briefly, and then we'll come back again and revisit the next section a bit later. Uh, I can confess to you that while I've spent hours and hours and probably hundreds of hours uh, studying and teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, if I were to to kind of put up a chart here of how much time I was spent studying which passages, you would see the chart plummet in chapter 7. And as I've assessed why that is, I think it really has to do that every time I've taught this, I've run out of time. And so by the time I got to chapter 7, I was just hurrying to get done and didn't have the time to really kind of delve more deeply into it. 
And I've kind of vowed to myself that someday I'm going to go back and spend a lot of time on chapter 7 because I felt like I was kind of skirting the surface of it. And this is a little bit of that process, though probably three sermons out of chapter 7 is, is still pretty thin, skimming. Uh, however, it's a passage that, incidentally, probably one of the most quoted verses in America today comes from this passage. And uh, it's unfortunate, probably, that John 3.16, which used to be the most loved verse in America, uh, has largely been replaced by Matthew 7.1, Judge not that you be not judged. And unfortunately, in its popularity, it's probably abused more than it's used because the context is not considered at all uh, in its typical use in our broader American culture today. But as we move into this passage, uh, it has a rather biting... Uh, that's, that's a bad choice of words. Let me try again. The passage has a very sharp knife that it wields that cuts deeply into the human experience. At least I found it to be that way. And I'll, I'll also confess to you and to the Lord that um, I used to feel pretty good reading this passage and teaching it and felt I held pretty high moral ground on this situation and came to discover that uh, that was indicative of my true problem. <laughs> so I say that to warn you, but you may find yourself on the high moral ground. If you do, just know you're probably the exception. Matthew 7, we'll read verses 1 through 12. Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, the words of your Son, Jesus, are words of truth. And at times it's very difficult for us to hear truth, particularly as to how it applies to us. And it's so easy for us to hear truth as to how it might apply to someone else. 
But here you just penetrate deeply into that mindset. Call it out, expose it, and invite us to repent of our self-righteousness, to trust you anew, so that we might live toward others as we truly wish others to live toward us. Guide us in wisdom and understanding today for the glory of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want you to consider these two contrasting stories, these two contrasting pictures, images. I was in my late teens when my father uh, purchased a small house as an investment property. And work was a bit slow in the business during the dead of winter. So I helped another man do some of the remodel work on the outside of the building, outside of the house. And in the process, I got something in my eye. And it irritated me for the afternoon. I got home, was conducting a choir at that time, and so went to choir rehearsal that night and led the choir rehearsal. Came home, climbed into bed, tried to go to sleep. And every little twitch of the eye, this thing was just scratching and scraping. I tried some eye wash, couldn't get it out. So finally I got up, and fortunately my dad was still up. And I said, hey, I can't sleep. This thing's hurting. It's painful. What am I going to do? And he said, well, let's call the family doctor. So we called Dr. Forbes, and this was now 11 o'clock at night, and Dr. Forbes answers his phone, this was small-town family doctor, and said, hey, come on down to the office, uh, we'll have a look at it. No, no, go off to the emergency room sort of thing, or hey, we'll see you in the morning. No, come on down. So we drove a few miles down to the family doctor's office, and he put me out on the table and brought in this big old magnifying glass and looked down through it and had me hold my eye open and he said, yes, you do have something in your eye. Gentle doctor that he was, he took some numbing drops and saturated the eye really good and while I lay there holding my eye open, he took a tweezers, pulled out a little metal sliver that had penetrated into the surface of my eye and then he said, and, oh, I hate to tell you this, but there's rust down in that little hole, so I'm going to have to clean that out. He took a very sharp needle and scratched and scraped all the rust out. And it didn't hurt, but the eyeball was twitching and jerking. I could feel it all, and I was looking him right in the nose, you know, the whole time. Big magnifying glass, bright light, a very gentle, caring doctor that I trusted implicitly. And he served me. Now, I got ready to leave. He said, now that doesn't hurt now. But you're going to wake up in about two hours. And you're going to think you're going to die. Here is some of the strongest pain medication I have in the office. Plan on every two hours tonight. But be comforted. The eye is one of the fastest healing parts of the body. And within about 36 hours you'll be recovered. The eye will be healed. Meanwhile, you've got to wear a patch over your eye because you can't let light there. So I walked out, big old patch over my eye, and sure enough, by 3 o'clock in the morning, I was wide awake. His eyeball was jumping. Boom, 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 boom. Popped a pill, hour later, back to sleep. But it healed quickly. 
And to this day, I'm incredibly grateful to that doctor. And he's, honestly, he delivered me when I was born. He's still practicing medicine. And he's in his 80s. It's just who he is. Contrast that to this picture. And it's the picture Jesus gives us of someone who has a speck in their eye. And there's someone else, a friend, someone who is in close proximity to that person that looks them in the eye. I mean, that's, those are friends. You look friends in the eye. You don't really look at strangers in the eye. It's the pathway to friendship, the pathway to relationship. And this person who's looking the friend in the eye has this massive cedar of Lebanon protruding out of his eyeball. And this is the same kind of word that's used to describe the cedars of Lebanon that Solomon floated down from Lebanon to build the temple. A log. Okay, four foot diameter, 40 feet long. Boom, I see a speck in your eye. I'm coming to get it. And try to get close enough to get that little speck out of your brother's eye. What will this poor fellow look like? Battered, bleeding, bruised. Certainly battered rather than bettered. Bleeding, bruised, and possibly even full of splinters. And that's the picture Jesus gives to us in this passage. And he does not affirm it as something that's good. He says this is a problem. But of course, we don't do that, right? That's not us. We would never do that. We don't, for starters, we certainly don't have any logs in our eyes. No. Consider the context of this. We're nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has laid out this pathway and the qualities of kingdom people. The pathway of conversion, the pathway of sanctification. How fortunate are the poor in spirit who then grieve their poverty, weep and mourn, in meekness receive from God, hunger and thirst for things to be put to rights. He describes these kinds of people as being the influential in the world, the people who are salt and light, who bring the kingdom of God change into a broken world. And then he gives us a glimpse of a higher law, the law of God, the law that Jesus actually intends for his people, where people not only stop murdering and committing adultery, but where the issues of anger and lust are addressed before they spill over into these kinds of destructive behaviors. He describes the society of people that now practice integrity, are committed to sacrificial love. And then after briefly describing the three pillars that nurture this life, the giving of alms, prayer, and fasting, he gives three very strong injunctions. The first one is, do not lay up treasures on earth. Lay them up in heaven. The next one, do not be anxious. God is a God who cares for his creation. 
The third one is, do not judge. And he gives three reasons why we should not judge. These are very direct injunctions. And as I understand chapter 7, really spilling back into chapter 6, Jesus is saying, this is now how you live wisely, as these kinds of people in the world. This is how I want you to live. And as, as we go through this passage, you begin to discover this is not very easy to, to kind of get right. It's really hard. Because the opening line is, don't pass judgment, don't judge, don't condemn. And then he goes on to assume that you're going to be discerning, you're going to make judgments, you're going to have to make calls on ethical situations, you're even going to have to exclude some people, which is a form of judgment. You're going to have to live wisely with great discernment. But don't be critical, judgmental sorts of people. Don't do it, he says. And there are all kinds of questions that immediately surface because we are told elsewhere in Scripture to exercise judgment. We're supposed to address our brother's faults. When someone sins against us, we're to go to them. If he doesn't hear it, we're to ramp it up, take someone else with us. That sounds like you're making some pretty clear judgment calls all along the pathway. You go down into chapter 7 a bit further. He says, I want you to pay, out, pay attention for false teachers. I want you to note them. Write them off. Get away from them. Exercising judgment. So what in the world is Jesus talking about? There are two cultural contexts that we have to pay a bit of attention to here. The first one is the context within which Jesus is speaking these words. So throughout the Gospel of Matthew, really throughout all of Jesus' ministry, but particularly in Matthew, Jesus has some very harsh words for scribes and Pharisees who have become experts at self-righteous judging. And so you get to Matthew chapter 23. He says to them, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. He calls them snakes. He calls them sepulchers, beautiful whitewashed outside tombs full of dead men's bones. He calls them cups that have been washed on the outside. Inside are absolutely filthy. Those are rather harsh, judgmental sorts of statements. And he's very direct with them. What's the problem with the scribes and Pharisees? They were very highly skilled at using both God's law as a measuring stick and then creating their additional measuring sticks that they regularly deployed against other people. Jesus doesn't criticize the positions they took. He doesn't criticize their, the fact that they respected God's law. He criticizes the fact that they used it on others and never applied it to themselves. Always out there measuring other folk. They never got in front of a mirror, held the stick up beside themselves, and said, where am I? Where am I in regards to the law of God? These were people with big logs projecting out of their eyes, and they were busy trying to pick specks out of other people's eyes. 
And they left crowds, they left the masses battered, bleeding, and not bettered. While this kind of situation is certainly a problem today, we live in a very different sort of culture. At least the dominant culture in which we live is a countertrend that knows this verse of the Bible very well, quotes it more frequently than almost any other, so that when anyone makes a moral judgment of any sort, they're immediately told, judge not. And so if you were to pass an opinion about divorce, or who should and should not get married, or about issues of sexual orientation, or a host of other things, you were to make any clear statements of right and wrong about some of those situations, someone's going to throw it back in your face and say, judge not. You don't have the right to judge on that issue. That's the culture in which we live. A pastor whom I know somewhat uh, recently was out to dinner with his wife. And as they were having a meal, somebody from another part of the restaurant walks up to them and in very loud, provocative language, calls this pastor a hater. His wife was initially somewhat stunned and taken aback. And, of course, you aren't used, most people aren't prepared for that kind of public interaction. But as his wife reflected on it later, she said, you know, my husband is a hater. He hates the same things that God hates, the seven things in the book of Proverbs. He hates divorce. He hates abortion. He hates the denigration of marriage in America today. And he's been very loud. He's been very outspoken in his pulpit and in his writing against the immoral trends. My husband's a hater. But he also loves you. And what's interesting is that the charge of being a hater came with very hateful language. But the person who was charging the other with being a hater was tolerant and viewed themselves as very tolerant while they were being hateful. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting how that works? The stick we use to measure others, we very rarely pause to sit in front of a mirror and be honest about ourselves. It's harder. It's more painful. It's very painful sometimes. And yet Jesus, while assuming that we will be called to live wisely with great discernment in the world, says, don't be judgmental, critical sorts of people. That shouldn't be your 
first posture in the world. And I want you to notice here, he says very, in very straightforward language, do not judge. Judge not. But then he gives us three specific reasons why we should not be that sort of people. And they are, very simply, judgmental, critical people will be judged by God. And that's somewhat assumed in the text. We'll look at that briefly. The second reason, if you're a judgmental, critical sort of person, walking around constantly measuring other people, that is the way you will be treated. People will assess and evaluate you in the exact same way, using the measuring stick you've measured against them. And believe me, since we're really good at seeing other people's stuff, they will reciprocate and be just as good at seeing your stuff with the same measuring stick you're using. And when that game starts, it just gets ugly fast. So don't judge. And the third, you have a natural tendency to see the faults in others that you yourself possess. You need to tend toward assessing your own faults, shortcomings, and sins first. So don't be judgmental and critical. Learn to evaluate yourself first. So let's look at these three reasons why we're not to judge. The first one, so that you are not judged. Judge not that you be not judged. Now many Bible scholars believe that this is a judgment of God that is assumed. And Jesus is addressing a crowd of people who are predominantly Jewish, who would not speak the name of God necessarily, but they know that God is the judge. And so instead of saying, judge not so that you will not be judged by God, it's assumed God is the judge, and God will judge those who are critical, judgmental sorts of people. So the implication here is that God judges those sorts of people. That's not what God wants for his people, and he will judge them. And Jesus, incidentally, saves his harshest words for self-righteous, judgmental folk, like the scribes and Pharisees tended to be. But there's something very interesting that we have to consider here. This seed of self-righteousness produces two different sorts of flowers. There are two different sorts of fruit that grow out of the seed of self-righteousness. The first one is legalism. And legalism says, I will do this or that. I will assess myself by this prescribed measuring stick. However good the measuring stick is or however poor it is, I'm going to do this in order to be accepted by God so that I can be received by God. I will manage myself, and particularly the way I appear to others, in order to avoid judgment. And people who do that are, in fact, trusting their own ability to manage their own sins, their own needs, out of a love for themselves, to protect themselves from the opinions of others, in a vain attempt to be adequately acceptable to God. Okay, it's a sin of the heart that doesn't always show itself. This sort of mentality that we know is legalism. 
Now the counterpart that often seems to be something very different and be birthed out of a very different sort of seedbed is antinomianism or lawlessness. That tends to be reflected in the attitude that says, ain't nobody telling me what to do. And in the Christian world, more specifically, it says, I will do this or that, even if God doesn't want me to. I will behave this way. I will live that way, even though God's law says, don't, because I will still be accepted by God. And what I do doesn't matter. So I can be a lawless renegade. Or in colloquial language, I can make a verbal commitment to Jesus Christ, and then I can do what I want to do. I can live like the devil. I don't have to obey God. And I can still be accepted by God. And where does that come from? It comes from the same seed of self-righteousness. The very same seed births both legalism and antinomianism or lawlessness. Both of them say, I will decide how I will be received and accepted and pleasurable or pleasing to God. And God can't tell me. Both set up the self as the judge and deny God as the judge. Both are a form of self-righteousness that is abhorrent to God. Both are a self-righteousness that God will judge. So don't be that way. Jesus says, don't be that sort of person, or you will be judged by God. Second, do not judge so that you are not similarly judged by others. And I'm sure you've all had other people who were like this towards you. You felt like you were constantly being evaluated, criticized, and condemned by someone who was close to you. It might have been the teacher, it might have been your mom, it might have been your dad, it might have been your older brother, older sister, it might have been the preacher, it might have been the boss, it might have been your supervisor. There's somebody there that your sense of your relationship is, they're always... And when you're a critical person, constantly pointing out people's faults, you will find that same sort of evaluation being done of you. It's the way it works. Do you like living with that sort of evaluation, critique, and constantly being found to come up short? You like that? No. None of us do. So Jesus says, if you don't want to be treated that way, don't be that kind of person. Stop acting like that. And the third reason, we are not to judge, be judgmental, critical sorts of people, he says, is because you ought to tend to your own faults first. Okay? Tend to your own faults first. When you look people in the eye, the closeness of friendship, 
Is it the eye of faults or grace? Is it love or condemnation? Is it a gospel-tinted look that says, I myself am poor and destitute, and I'm grieving over my own sin? I'm grieving over you, a fellow sinner's sin, and the brokenness that we have contributed to the world. And I stand in meekness before the Lord to receive from him his judgment, like the Apostle Paul. I, I really don't even trust myself to judge myself. Okay? Jesus says, turn the eye to yourself first. Paul says, even when I do, I don't get it right. I don't even know my heart fully. And I'm going to have to trust God to judge me so that at the end of time, he will reveal all that has really been. And he's okay with God doing that. That's a very different posture to come to each other in a gospel-oriented, gospel-centered, gospel-tinted look into each other's eyes. These sorts of people, these beatitude sorts of people, are the merciful. They're the ones who hunger and thirst. Notice this. They hunger and thirst for righteousness, for things to be right. Believe me, they know the measuring stick. They know what ought to be. They're not ignoring it. They're not lawless people. They know exactly what Jesus' prescription is. But as they continually hold it up to themselves, they find out, I'm in need of God's grace. And when they encounter the speck in someone else's eye, they say, you know, I'm in, I'm in desperate need of God's grace. It appears that in this situation you are too. And they're able to assist. They're able to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ and be very cautious lest they themselves are tempted. That's a very different posture than one of self-righteous judging and condemnation and heaping criticism. It's a very different posture. But this is, this is so tricky. And let me tell you, this is what happened to me yesterday. It's this tricky. It's so tricky that you, in fact, each of you listening here right now, are demonstrating in your own hearts whether or not you struggle with this seed of self-righteousness. And it goes like this. You hear these penetrating words of Jesus. Who is first in your mind? I hope so-and-so is listening. That is the fruit of the self-righteous seed in your heart. If you're sitting here and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, that look, look how desperately I'm inclined towards self-righteousness, then you don't have self-righteousness. You're sitting here and you have other people flashing through your mind. I hope they're getting this. Yep, it's exactly that's the seed of self-righteousness deeply planted in your own heart that Jesus is saying. You're being judgmental. You're judging. And I don't want that to be the first step. I want it to be you. I want it to be you. I had a few silent moments in the office. And I'm guessing 90% of you should have a few silent moments right now. 
You see, it's so easy to see other people who do this. It's so hard. It's so hard to see how we do it. But Jesus said, that's the issue. That's the problem. And when you don't see how you do it, you actually live with this beam in your eye toward other people. Even when you think you're being gracious and loving and tolerant, you wouldn't pass judgment on anyone. You're calling them haters. That's how tricky this thing is. I'll give you a very generic illustration of how this works for me. I hate mess. I hate clutter. And if you've ever been in my mom's house, you know there's none. Okay, I it's just impeccable. And that's that kind of house I grew up in. Learn to value it, appreciate it, probably worship it. I don't know how all I send in that context. Judged everybody else for not having a tidy house and all that stuff. Can you guess what my spaces look like? Stacks of paper, stacks of unopened mail, books that I read three days ago still open, lying in a circle around the desk. And my wife's not here, so she can't defend herself. I walk into the kitchen, and there's some mess, some garbage, some, I don't know. Annoys me. I walk into my office, and I'm merciful to myself. Very kind to myself. Very nice to myself. What does a gospel-anchored, gospel-tinted set of glasses look like in those situations? Okay, and then I'll tell you how, how I tend to deal with it. Okay, so I know that I have a messy problem. I know my wife has a messy problem. I'm not going to say anything to her about her messy problem because as soon as I do, she's going to tell me about my messy problem. And I know where that goes. Okay, so we shut up. I shut up and say nothing. And I suffer in love as the saint that I am. Oh, no. Oh no, the self-righteousness is there deep in the heart and the big beam is out and it's whacking around by attitude, by the way I look in the eye. It's all there. I don't say anything. Don't say anything. But she's battered and beaten. Okay, now she will sometimes say things to me about those sorts of things. She's more, much more quick to point out my needs. And we'll assume, for the sake of conversation illustration, that they're always rooted in godly desire, willingness to serve, seeking to help and bless. Not always received that way, but we'll assume they're given that way. What would a gospel-anchored, gospel-tinted response be in that situation? I think it would compel us eventually to say, you know, I've 
grew up in a tidy household, and I've discovered that it wasn't because I lived in the house. It was in spite of the fact that I lived in the house. I didn't have much to do with the tidiness. It's my mom. I'm a messy guy. And that's a problem. Could you help me develop some habits and disciplines so that I have a more restful order in my office? And I'm sorry for the way this inconveniences you sometimes. I go to work on that. And then maybe someday I could say, you know, you've got this messy habit here in this part of the house that that bothers me. Is there some way I can help you with that? Is there, can, we, can we develop a different approach to this part of the house so that we bring some order and rest instead of the chaos that comes? I think that's more of a gospel-tinted serving. What would it look like if we as a church looked each other in the eye in those ways? wearing gospel-colored glasses that says, you know, I, I'm a broken creature myself. God's grace is so rich and poured out. I, I grieve over my sin and things that aren't the way they ought to be. I grieve over yours. I love you. And the opportunities come where we help each other then, speaking truth and love into those contexts. I think the glory of Christ would exponentially be increased in this body. To acknowledge a gospel, a gospel-tinted view of judging, of judgment, of discernment, of living wisely is to deal with the log in my own eye first. To repent and to be repenting. To sorrow and to grieve. But to know the mercy of Christ and His grace. <laughs> And it's also not to wait until I'm perfect to help others. It's rather to acknowledge my own poverty while I also see the poverty of another. It's to grieve my own failure while I also grieve the failure of another. It's to stand before the cross of Jesus seeking His grace while simultaneously pointing out the way of grace to another needy, broken soul. That's the pathway of Jesus. That's what Jesus invites us to. That's what Jesus calls us to. And this is something very, very different than the self-righteous judging of either legalism or lawlessness. Very different. We mutually submit to the authority and rule of Jesus. And we call each other to the authority and rule of Jesus. The picture of the log and the speck is a graphic picture. Don't let the picture go from your mind. And Jesus reminds us, it's not how you want to be treated you don't want people helping you with these big old beams sticking out of their eyes while they're trying to serve you. So don't do it to others. Do unto others exactly what you want them to do to you.
as you wish others to do to you, do also to them. And then there's this little caveat tossed in. Even if you have the log extracted, you now see clearly you have these gospel glasses on. You see clearly the measuring stick of the law of God. You place yourself before the grace of Christ alongside the measuring stick. Even when that's the case, you're still going to need to be discerning and wise with how you handle the truth of God. Because there are dogs and there are pigs. Dogs don't care about your pearls. They're not enamored by pearl necklaces and bracelets. They have no way of recognizing its value. No way. In fact is, you give them a husk of corn, they'll devour it, trample the husk under. You give them a string of pearls, they'll trample them under. They have no discernment. I think Jesus is implying, as I'm teaching you the way of the kingdom, these are pearls of great price. People have sold everything to get a glimpse of my kingdom and of the new society I'm building. Be very discerning and wise with how you take the pearls of the kingdom and feed them to dogs. The immediate context is here. Dogs are Gentiles. They're pagans who do not know God. They do not know the law of God. Jesus said, I came to the household of Israel. Followers of Jesus, I'm giving you my pathway. But be very careful how you talk about it with those who do not know God. Because they'll have no regard for them. They'll trample them in the mire. And they'll come after you and just tear you to pieces. So even when you know, even when you have done the self-examination, you stand humbly before the Lord, that doesn't mean you say everything you know in every, con every, con every conversation, in every situation. You must learn that discernment. Wisdom teaches us that we don't address everything we see that is wrong. Wisdom teaches us that because I see it does not put me under obligation to say it. Wisdom teaches us that we must also pay careful attention to the potential reception of what we're going to say. Sometimes you say it knowing you're going to suffer and it's not going to be received. Sometimes you don't. And you entrust it to the God who judges. And I'm here to tell you how to do that. Jesus is saying, it's a pathway of wisdom. Walk with wisdom and discernment. And learn, as he says in John 7, 24, not to just judge by appearances, but learn a righteous judgment. When we acquire new skill sets, when we gain new insights, as the disciples of Jesus have been doing here in his teaching, the most natural thing for us to do is take that new insight, that new discovery, and go to everyone else and say, Na, 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 na. Look what I can do. And you can't. Jesus says, don't do it. Stand before the Lord. And the golden rule becomes a guide for us here. 
to effectively engage in wisdom. We long to be understood. So seek to understand. Seek to understand in order to gain a hearing. We long to be loved. Then we are willing to receive assistance. And you know, I have a, a dear old pastor friend in the area who has listened to me so many ways and so many times, has served me in innumerable ways as a father. And on a couple of occasions, he said to me, Steve, I think as I see you operating, I think you're going to watch, you're going to want to watch for this. You want to be careful because in who you are, you have the tendency to X, Y, Z. Some of the most gentle words. And I tell you, those words ring through my ears. They ring through my ears. They have come from a man who loves, who has listened, who cares, who cares deeply about my success. And it took only the brush of a feather to register. You want to be those kinds of people who gain that kind of trust, earn that kind of love and respect, and to which, from a heart of deep humility, you can speak truth and you can have bettered brothers instead of bleeding, battered brothers. May God help us to be those kinds of people wearing gospel-tinted glasses. Recipients of grace, inviting others to see the grace of Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, your word has a way of just penetrating deeply into our hearts, exposing one of our most natural tendencies of self-preservation, self-justification, And as you, in your grace, bring that to light, lead us to repentance. As we bask in the grace that you lavishly pour out on us in our poverty, in our sorrow, may we turn to our fellow pilgrims and love them with the grace of the gospel in ways that we become of true service to your sanctifying purposes so that we would be a body of believers who bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. A body of people who judge themselves and yet even are skeptical of their own ability to judge themselves, trust themselves completely to your judgment, are not critical, but learn to walk the pathway of wisdom and discernment, to love our neighbor well, so that we can bear their burdens together. That your sanctifying work would be done in this community of faith as we speak truth in love to each other for the building up of the body of Christ. Lord, how desperately we need your transforming work in our hearts to be that kind of people. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.